Kia ora. Welcome to the start of this walk at Covent Garden Tube Station here in London. My name is Kahu. I'm a Cook Island Māori girl from Aitutaki, which is one of the many islands which make up the Cook Islands, and Taranaki, which is the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. My iwi is Ngāti Maru. I was born and raised in London after my parents moved here a few years before my birth. And now I continue to live in London with a strong connection back to my homeland. Ayuki. My name is Nathan Woodworth, and I'm an actor uh, studying here in London at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, where I'm attending on a Fulbright scholarship. I'm a member of the Karuk tribe of California and focus on bringing my tribe's oral stories together with the classical Western canon. London might seem like an unlikely place to find indigenous history, but this Origins Festival walking tour will show that there are many stories of colonized people visiting the capital of the empire for many different reasons. It's a historical tour, but that doesn't mean that indigenous people should only be seen in historical terms. Kahu and I are contemporary, young, and indigenous, and at the moment, we both live in London. We'll begin this two-hour tour here at Covent Garden Tube Station. Find Longacre on your left and turn right into it. Follow Longacre as far as Bow Street, and then walk down Bow Street until you see the Royal Opera House on your right. Here we are in the heart of the old theatre district. The Royal Opera House has existed here since 1732. Many indigenous visitors attended plays here. For example, Benelong, an Eora man from Australia, came to see a performance of Faust in 1793. Benelong had been captured by the British at Sydney Cove in 1789 with the intention that he would teach the colonists the language and the customs of the Eora, who kept their distance from the settlement. He learned English and travelled with his compatriot Yemarawane to London in 1792. They lived in fashionable Grosvenor Square until Yemarawane became sick, at which point they moved to Eltham and were tended by the Sydney colony governor, Arthur Phillips, and his wife. Yemarawane died in Eltham and was buried there. Benelong also fell ill, but he was tended by the surgeon George Bass on the return voyage to Australia. He recovered and taught the surgeon enough Daruk to enable communication between the British and the Eora. Continue on Bow Street until you reach Russell Street and notice the Theatre Royal on your left. The Theatre Royal, Drury Lane, is one of the oldest theatres in London, and it also saw indigenous visitors in the audience. The Theatre Royal is where a near riot broke out during the visit of the four Iroquois, or Haudenosaunee, kings in 1710 one of several theatres vying for their attendance during their stay since their presence brought crowds keen to observe them. Native American societies did not have kings in the way Europeans did. These quote-unquote kings were young men chosen by either the clan mothers or the British colonists, and were not in fact all Haudenosaunee. Three of them, Onea Hirajo, Tejana Karawa, and Sagayan Kwaratan, were Mohawk, and so were from the Iroquois Confederacy. The fourth, Itawachum, was Mohican, an Algonquin-speaking people allied to the Haudenosaunee from 1675. Traveling to London as a diplomatic delegation, they sought Queen Anne's assistance against French encroachment on their land, just recompense for the vital and often fatal role their men had played defending British settlers in Canada. The British, in turn, sought to both impress the Haudenosaunee with their might and power, 
and to present the image of a political alliance that legitimized their colonial claims against the French. This was why they called them kings. The Haudenosaunee were no strangers to diplomacy, having managed relationships with newcomers through the Covenant Chain, a diplomatic sequence that linked them to other peoples through the Haudenosaunee Great Law of Peace. This great law would later serve as a political framework appropriated from tribal nations in order to create portions of the American Constitution and governmental structure that would, with a horrible irony, define those kings as subhuman savages. Turn right into Russell Street and continue into Covent Garden. Two years after the four kings left London, there was an outbreak of gang violence in the area around Covent Garden Market. Men were assaulted, women were attacked, noses were cut and people were put into barrels and rolled down streets. The most feared of these gangs allegedly called themselves the Mohawks, illustrating 18th century ideas about savagery. As late as the 1870s, vandalism and violence perpetrated by wealthy young men in places like Oxford was being reported in the local press as the actions of, quote-unquote, Mohawks. So embedded did this image become. As has so often been the case, the spectacle of the Four Kings' visit had become a vehicle for Londoners to tell stories about themselves and their city. We might compare this with more recent examples, like the appropriation of Native American imagery by the Exeter Chiefs Rugby Club, which after a long campaign has now been changed. Cross through Covent Garden Market and leave via King Street at the opposite end on the right. Midway down King Street on the right, above the shops, notice a small blue plaque. Thomas Arne, the writer of Rule Britannia, which would become a theme song for the British Empire, lived here as an adult. As a very young child, he lived elsewhere with his upholsterer father, who hosted the four kings in his home. We can only wonder about any connection between Arne's childhood memories of the kings and his vision of empire, which hardly seems compatible with their diplomatic mission. Continue on as King Street becomes New Row, noticing the scale of the 18th century street. At St. Martin's Lane, turn left and proceed down into Trafalgar Square, where you will arrive at the Church of St. Martin in the Fields. After lying in state at the Adelphi, the coffins of Liholiho and Kamamalu, king and queen of Hawaii, were placed in the crypt here. This royal couple had travelled to Britain in 1824 to visit King George IV and attended many of the places we have already seen. Their meeting with the king had to be postponed as Kamamalu and then Liholiho became ill with measles. They died less than two months after their arrival and within a week of one another. Their bodies were stored here until August 1824, when they were put aboard the HMS Blonde and transported back to Hawaii for a proper funeral and burial. Across from St. Martin in the Fields, notice the National Gallery and look for the statue of a man on a horse. The figure on the horse represents King George IV, the massive columns at the front of the gallery were scavenged from his home, the palatial Pall Mall residence built when he was still the Prince of Wales. At Carlton House, George entertained the Mohawk warrior and leader Thyandanasia, also known as Joseph Brandt, whom we might imagine walking between these columns. 
Thyandinasia was the grandson of one of the four kings we mentioned earlier, leader of loyalist Mohawk warriors who allied themselves with Britain during the American War of Independence, Thyandinasia would visit Britain twice, first in 1775 in the hope of persuading King George III to address Mohawk land claims in return for their loyalty, and again in 1785, this time to ask for assistance in defending the Haudenosaunee Confederacy from attack by the American colonists. Despite supporting him, the British did not give these assurances, and earlier promises around land claims had also gone unresolved. Thyandinasia relocated his people to land set aside for them in what is now southern Ontario in 1784. Look for the building with the Canadian flags on the side of the square opposite St. Martin in the Fields. This is the High Commission of Canada. Built in the 1820s, it became Canada House in 1925, a place where indigenous Canadian activists who traveled to London in search of, for example, land rights, have engaged with both the Canadian state and the Crown. As such, the High Commission has sometimes been a contested space. Look for interesting temporary exhibitions here, often to do with indigenous arts. In 2019, for instance, they exhibited Kwakwakiwaku artist Sony Asu and Mohawk artist Skawanati. Many indigenous servicemen and women worked here during World War II as well, celebrating VE Day in Trafalgar Square. Pass between Canada House and the National Gallery and continue along Pall Mall East until you're at the corner of Haymarket. Now you're at the New Zealand High Commission. Inside the entrance of New Zealand House, you can see a poahi, or Māori totem. Placed in the centre of the foyer, it rises some four floors through the centre of the building. It was carved in 1972 by Inya Tewiata. He was a great opera singer and film actor, as well as a carver. He lived in London for most of his adult life, where his friends included the comedian Spike Milligan. The tall carving tells of the great Māori tribes long ago before the coming of the Pākehā, or white man. There are many Māori living in London today, and our club, Ngāti Rāna, meet regularly at New Zealand House to practice our cultural traditions. Go back across Trafalgar Square, past St Martin in the Fields, and turn into Duncannon Street. Walk until you're facing Charing Cross Station. Empire has everything to do with naming. Names like Boston, New York, Nova Scotia, Halifax, and countless others are not just arbitrary. They are the transposition of British places onto territories that were imagined as needing colonial transformation. Charing Cross, where in the 13th century a memorial cross was erected for a dead queen, Eleanor of Castile, wife of Edward I, is an intriguing example. In his maps of the far north of what is now Canada, 16th century explorer Martin Frobisher named one headland Charing Cross, creating yet another entanglement between London and the broader world. 
The area around Charing Cross, meanwhile, was known in the 17th century as the Bermudas, in part because of the prevalence of tobacco houses here. Another exchange of place names between the quote-unquote old and new worlds. Carry on, crossing the Strand into Villiers Street, the mostly pedestrianized street going down the hill to the left of Charing Cross Station. At John Adams Street, turn left and walk to the corner of Durham House Street on the left. Sir Walter Raleigh's Durham House is long gone, but its name remains, along with those of other great houses that once stood along the Strand. This is where, in the late 16th century, Thomas Harriet and Manteo crafted the Osamukamuk orthography, the key to a language spoken by the not entirely willing hosts of a failed colony. Manteo had first been brought to London in 1584 and returned home to Osamukamuk with Sir Richard Grenville's expedition to settle a colony. There, Manteo became an ally and interpreter to the colonists, whilst his fellow traveller, Juan Chis, led his people to take up arms against the English. Manteo would return to London in 1586 to help plan the restoration of the alien colony. The eventual disappearance of the Roanoke colony by 1590 is one of the great mysteries of North American history. This relatively early instance of coercing indigenous interlocutors to England in order to secure their knowledge of terrain, hostile groups and resources such as gold became a mainstay of Raleigh's operations among the Mosquito in Guyana, present-day Venezuela, in the 1590s. Retrace your steps to Villiers Street and turn left. Part way down the hill, enter the Arches Shopping Arcade on the right and walk through the arcade until you emerge into Craven Street. Craven Street is where an unnamed 11-year-old Odawa boy attacked his captor upon discovering his kin's remains among a collection of human scalps. General George Townsend led the British troops during the Battle of the Plains of Abraham in the Seven Years' War, just outside Quebec City. Townsend brought the 11-year-old back from the war as a captive in 1761, holding him in his Craven Street home, a few doors down from the London home of Benjamin Franklin, where he used him to entertain guests, one of whom, the elegist Thomas Gray, provides the only account of his presence here. This story is particularly disturbing for Native American people. It's hard to imagine how this boy must have suffered, and we have to ask how a society that referred to a visiting delegation of Iroquois dignitaries as kings just 50 years before this child's story now tolerated the imprisonment and abuse of a young child from a similar background. It's all the more disturbing that, just along the same street, an American founding father was developing the ideology of a supposedly free and equal U.S. democracy. Take Craven Street to the left to Northumberland Avenue. Cross the avenue and enter Whitehall Gardens, continuing along the length of the gardens until Horse Guards Avenue, where you should turn right. Walking up this hill, it is impossible to miss the fact that we are passing through a landscape of raw power. For centuries, Whitehall has been the centre of British sovereignty. Number 10 Downing Street is nearby, 
and the edifices around us are simply the latest in a long line of buildings that housed the workings of empire. From here until the end of the tour, we are at the true heart of English and British colonialism. To the right, you can see the masts and rigging of the Admiralty on top of the building. The Admiralty is the entity that oversaw the expeditions of Captain James Cook. From this place emanated scientific discovery, imperial competition and doctrines such as Terra Nullius, which denied indigenous ownership and title to the land. At the same time, Cook's experiences on his voyages were just as diverse as the people he encountered, ranging from diffidence to threat, to peaceful trade, to all-out violence, including his death at Kealakekua Bay in 1779. During his third voyage in the Pacific, Cook was killed when trying to detain the ruling chief of Hawaii. Continue across Horse Guards Parade to Horse Guards Road and turn left into Great George Street. Carry on into Parliament Square. Westminster Abbey is on your right. Westminster Abbey was a common destination for many indigenous travellers who each had their own distinct responses to this imposing space full of the dead. Liho Liho and Kamamalu chose not to enter it. For example, since the dead there were strangers, Liho Liho would have considered it a desecration of the burial place of kings to whom he had no blood connection had he entered the abbey. For Saplek and his Salish counterparts in 1906, the abbey was of great interest, in particular the Stone of Schoon and the Shrine of King Edward the Confessor. Saplek, a Squamish leader, was one of a group of four Salish people who arrived in London in 1906. They met and befriended Dagayanwage, also known as E. Pauline Johnson, a Mohawk poet who greeted them in the Chinook jargon. Wearing regalia that denoted his right to speak for the indigenous people of British Columbia, a bright sash from the upper Fraser Valley, buckskin and fox fur from the northern interior, and his own mountain goat wool blanket, Saplek led the delegation to meet with the crown, thus circumventing provincial and federal authorities. Their petition, highlighting the fact that indigenous title to most of British Columbia had never been extinguished, was greatly embarrassing to the colonial authorities. While the king received them warmly, Canadian officials, intent on undermining their trip, limited the visit to only 15 minutes. Nevertheless, the men left feeling hopeful. Returning to the abbey, for people to whom stones could be ancestors and sources of spiritual and political authority, the stone beneath the coronation chair would have made immediate sense, and since the ancestral names could carry power across generations, the distance between Edward the Confessor and Edward VII would have seemed short indeed. Elsewhere in the Abbey you can find the Townsend Monument, its two Atlantes modeled on the Odawa boy brought back in 1761. On the other side of Abingdon Street, to the right of Big Ben, look for Westminster Palace. Westminster Palace, one of the oldest structures in London, is also the site of indigenous London's beginnings. It is where three men, probably Inuit, appeared in 1501 or 1502, brought to England perhaps as early as 1497, probably by Bristol merchants. 
Two of these men were observed two or so years later, dressed as English gentlemen and conversing together in the corridors of power. While this image and this story is very arresting, it is also indicative of the fragmentary nature of the archive, as this is all we really know about them. Go past Big Ben on your right, and proceed to Westminster Bridge for a view of the Houses of Parliament. The Houses of Parliament were a common destination for indigenous visitors, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. One of the most notable visits was that of Hongihika and Waikato, which inspired something of a melee among the MPs straining to get a close look at them. Hongihika was a Ngapu Yariki, or Māori chief, who travelled to England with his nephew, Waikato, aboard a ship called the New Zealander in 1820. Seeking advantage to over-surrounding Māori communities, the two men hoped to entice miners, blacksmiths, agriculturalists and soldiers to their homeland. Like so many before them, they rubbed shoulders with aristocrats, politicians and clergy, toured the sites, had their portraits painted, and met with King George IV. Everywhere they went, including the House of Commons, their tamoko, or tattooing, drew considerable interest, particularly as they were dressed in fashionable 19th century outfits, creating a striking contrast with the images their facial tattoos would have cast for the British onlookers. On their return home, they sold gifts they had been given in order to purchase up to 400 muskets. Exerting their power through a destabilising series of conflicts known as the Musket Wars, the Ngāpū deepened their rule over large stretches of the North Island, but thousands of Māori died in the process. Revenge for an earlier battle in 1795, in which the Ngāpū had suffered heavy losses to Ngāti Pāwa. Imperial entanglement and the trip to the heart of empire re represented an opportunity for Hongihika, but it was their inter-iwi affairs that he turned his attention, reminding us that while London played a clear role in indigenous networks, it was the periphery rather than centre. Our tour ends here on Westminster Bridge, looking over the River Thames. Along this part of the river in the spring of 1603, a group described as Virginians was seen canoeing. Although they were almost certainly from one of the eastern Algonquin nations, they were likely not from what is now Virginia, since Jamestown had yet to be founded. It is impossible to know how they came here or who they were, but we do know that thousands turned out to see them, both from the banks and other watercraft. We also do not know what happened to them, although there was an outbreak of plague in London that summer that may have spelled their end. Their canoe, meanwhile, ended up in the collection of the newly knighted politician Sir Walter Cope. The river was here before the city, and before the empire, and it will be here after the city is gone. Perhaps you would like to remain here for a moment, looking into the waters. They help to put all our histories in perspective.